Okay, everyone, why don't we gather in? Can you turn to uh, Luke chapter 10 in your Bibles, verse 25? <coughs> Luke, 10, Luke 10, 25. Why don't we stand and read together? And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast, and brought him to the inn and took care of him. On the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return him or pay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy towards him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Why don't we pray? Jesus, we come to you uh, with this passage. And it's been taught on just literally probably thousands upon thousands of times over the years. And um, it seems easy at first read and pretty straightforward. And in many ways it is. But there are some difficulties in the passage too, Lord. And just uh, help me sort through what is actually from you and what is not and come to the heart of the message that you want to be proclaimed today. Uh, we look forward to our time together, and may your spirit strengthen us through your word. In Christ's name, amen. So when Graham and Serena were here, uh, Graham made a phrase in the sermon that I thought was very well said. And I wanted to jump off of that point that he made. He said that in Scripture and in life, um, in terms of what we read and how we function with Christ, there's sort of two identifications. There's Jesus who identifies with us, but then we are also to identify with him. And I thought, why not, since we're done with the book of Peter, why not do a series on identifying with the Lord? Identifying with the Lord. And as I thought about the ways in which we could do that, um, I thought, why not use parables? Why not use the parables? I mean, parables, in their purest or easiest definition, is really an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's an earthly story with a spiritual truth to it. And he, Jesus taught in parables to illustrate certain truths that he wanted us to grasp. So I thought, if, if I want to get to know the heart and mind of Jesus, and as well as you do, why not study some parables together over the next few weeks 
and learn about the spiritual truths that he wants us to learn. This way we can learn like what his mind, what's, a pro, a point, a, what's important and appropriate for his mindset towards life. And if these were good for his listeners 2,000 years ago, surely they're good for us today as well, because the spiritual truths are transcended over time. Now there are 39 parables in total in the Bible. I don't know if you knew that or not. I didn't, I had to look it up. 39 in total, and over the next few weeks, we're going to be taking a look at just a few of the ones that I choose to speak to you about. Today, we're going to do the most familiar, probably, of all the parables in the Bible, known as the, known typically as the Good Samaritan, and it's well known not only in Christian circles, but non-Christian circles as well. Um, it's, the, the word or phrase Good Samaritan is synonymous across our culture with anyone who wants to help out those who are in need. You're a good Samaritan if I see you and you need five bucks and I give it to you. You're a good Samaritan if your wheel on your car is flat and I go and fix it for you. And I'm a good Samaritan if I give to charity and all sorts of things. We even have Samaritan's Purse. You, may, you give Christmas presents to kids in, uh, who are disfranchised and whatnot. So really it's designed as a compliment to someone if they're a good and kind person. Really in our culture you can replace the word Samaritan with humanitarian. Really, that's what the way we look at it. a good humanitarian person who just gives back. You know, that's the way. That's the phrase I hear a lot in local folks. Just want to give back. Want to be a good Samaritan. Question is, is that really like what Jesus was talking about? Was the, the Samaritan example, and was the purpose of it just to teach us that we have to be kind to one another and look to meet look meet people's needs? Is that the basic? understanding of the story. I think uh, that pretty much is for, for, the, for like 99% of the people out there. It's about being kind and loving someone um, and being a humanitarian. But I'm going to suggest that it's not that simple and it's not that easy. And to, to, to just give $5 to someone on the side of the road is not, a, is not what Jesus is talking about. Now when I first started studying this parable, I chose it because, not because of only its familiarity, I chose it because I thought it was going to be the easiest to do, <laughs> starting out parables to get my, get my feet wet. Man, was I wrong. Man, was I wrong. I read four to five, and listened to four to five, the combination of both, um, either commentaries or other people preaching it. There was not one person who had a unanimous view of what Jesus was doing, what the views were, what was going on. So even last night and even this morning, I'm wrestling through what is really the truth of this parable. And so uh, I didn't feel as bad knowing that I could, I had like, you know, um, people of like high scholarship disagreeing with what Jesus is actually trying to convey here. So I say all this to say that it's not easy as first glance to understand this, but I think I'm going to, you know, uh, put enough work in to get the main gist across to you. And I'm sure we might have some interesting dialogue and if you push back a little, I'm, I'll probably be familiar with the arguments you're going to bring, um, just because they're already presented by the scholars and the commentaries and other pastors and whatnot. So that's enough waggling on the tee, getting my golf swing warmed up. Let's uh, try to strike a ball here. Okay? So let's get the context of why Jesus told this parable in the first place. We pick this up in verse 25 through 29. A lawyer stands up and puts Jesus to the test. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? And the guy answers correctly. He says, you shall love the Lord with your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you, your neighbor as yourself. 
Jesus then says, well, you've answered this right, so do this, love God and love your neighbor, and you'll live. You'll have eternal life like you hope for. But then wishing to justify himself, he says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? So that's the context before Jesus gives the parable of the Samaritan person and the Levites and the priests and whatnot. The question at hand is the most important question that every human being needs to think about at some point in their life. What does it take to gain eternal life? That's the original question. What do I do, basically, to gain eternal life? Now, I do want to say this because this is fresh in my mind um, through my study of Peter and through the schooling I took at Regent College. I do want to talk about the Western view of eternal life and the Jewish view of eternal life and make the contrast. And we have to adopt the Jewish view of eternal life. This is important for us. Going back to Peter again. When we say, how do you gain eternal life? Automatically we think, how do we get to heaven? How do we get to heaven? That's what we think. That's not the Jewish context of thinking. When they think about eternal life, they understand that when, the, when Jesus, the Messiah, or when the Messiah, I should say, they didn't think it was Jesus, but when the Messiah returns, he's going to have a physical reign on this earth. A resurrection of the dead will take place and the Messiah will reign in Israel and, and the nations of the world will come and worship uh, Jesus, or again, the Messiah. Uh, I keep saying Jesus because we already think that. But uh, worship the Messiah in Israel and the nations will come and submit to his authority. So heaven is on earth. It involves a resurrection. The Messiah is reigning and he subdues the nations and they submit to his authority. That's, that is what eternal life means to a Jew. And that's important. We need to get our heads in that space because that's what is going to take place. That is what's going to take place. And, we have to, and that's going to, that is heaven for us. That is eternal life. Earth and heaven are united and it'll be out of the Middle East. Okay? So the Lord's question is really to Jesus is, what does it take for me to be part of that? Now, when you think of a lawyer asking this question, don't think of a guy who handles real estate and does your will. A lawyer in that culture is a scribe. A scribe. A scribe in the Jewish context is one who was considered expert in the Mosaic law. So this person would copy the law down and, and, and try to preserve scripture. And he would be considered an expert in how to understand it and interpret it rightly. So if you were in a, in, a, in a Jewish context, you'd go to the scribe and say, I'm reading this passage in Deuteronomy. Can you help me understand what it means? And he would sit down and tell you, and you would take his word as verbatim being truth. So these guys were like scholars in the Old Testament Torah. Evidence that they're considered experts and well-versed in the Torah is seen in verses 26 and 28. The entire conversation Jesus has with the lawyer is about what? How do you rightly interpret the law? So he, Jesus knows he's familiar with it, and even his interpretation is even right. Jesus says, you've answered this correctly. You love God and love your neighbor. So again, this is really important to see. So this guy is a, a religious man who knows the Bible, I guess you could say. But here's the key, church. When the lawyer asked the question, what do I do to gain eternal life? He wasn't genuinely seeking to know the answer. He wasn't spiritually hungry or sensitive to what Jesus was going to have to say. Here's why. He already believed he had eternal life when he asked the question. He believed he was already going to have eternal life when he asked the question. How do we know? There's two observations in the text that are key. 
Verse 25 says, he stood up and put Jesus to the test. The test. How many, every time you see Jesus being tested in the New Testament, it's got two purposes behind it. To get him trapped, so that A, he loses popularity with the crowds and the people, but B, and more importantly for the religious leaders, have him killed. So this question here is a test. What do I do to get eternal life? It's not like he really wants to know. He's actually trying to get Jesus in a corner where he can either lose popularity or be killed. Number two, substantiation is verse 29. After Jesus says, you understand the law correctly, he says, wishing to justify himself. Wishing to justify himself. When you justify yourself, it's a mode of what? Self-defense. It's a mode of self-defense. What the lawyer was trying to do by asking the question, then who is my neighbor? He was trying to basically prove to Jesus that he was actually still good in God's books. It was almost like he was saying this, I, I know I fulfilled the law's requirements, unless of course, Jesus, you have another definition of neighbor I'm unaware of. Kind of like that cynical kind of way of going about it. Right? I'm already doing this, Jesus. I'm already loving my neighbor, unless you have a different, different definition of neighbor. Ha, ha, ha. Don't miss the importance of this. Because the lawyer understood himself as being right with God. And it's going to be significant for understanding the parable later on. So let's look at Jesus' response to the lawyer's question in verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jericho, Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A couple observations you don't want to miss from the first uh, verse here is first that this man was purely a victim of unforeseen circumstances. He's a victim of unforeseen circumstances. Jesus makes it clear that on his journey, he wasn't stripped and beaten and robbed because he'd done anything to provoke anybody in anger. Nor was it an issue of justice where someone was handing out justice for something he'd done. It wasn't an eye for an eye, tooth for the tooth type of situation. This guy is clearly just traveling down the road and it, the key verse or word there is fell among robbers. So the robbers obviously had um, predetermined this and it was a premeditated uh, attack on this guy. And he was a victim, a victim of unforeseen circumstances, had done nothing to create the situation. The second, observation is the extent of his injuries. They didn't just take, attack him to make a dollar. They actually wanted to injure him severely. It says there that they, um, they stripped him and beat him and leave, left him half dead. If you were to come across this man today, uh, walking down the street, and you were to call 911, probably the phrase you would use is, we found a man in critical condition. He's in critical condition, hanging on for his life. So you get to see here, church, the situation is critical. It's one of desperation. And this is where Jesus, the master storyteller, introduces a beacon of hope to help with the situation. If anyone is going to demonstrate compassion and take care of this man's situation, it's going to be the next two characters in the parable. And we pick these guys up in 31 and 32. Now by chance, a priest was going down on that road and here's the key, and saw him. Verse 32, Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to that place, he also saw him. So this is an incredible turn of events in Jesus' story. 
if you're living in Jerusalem back then, you, exactly, you knew exactly who these people were and what they represented. The priests and the Levites were God's servants. They're a picture of justice, a picture of righteousness, a picture of, of what it is to be connected to God. You were reminded of this every time you went to the temple. You couldn't worship God at the temple without the priest mediating on your behalf and the Levites assisting them in their work. These, these men had access to parts of the temple you wouldn't have access to because they were connected to God in a way that you weren't and, and they wanted to demonstrate how holy you had to be to move into these parts of the sanctuary. You couldn't worship God either in the way you did your own animal sacrifices or made offerings. You had to have their presence and they had to take everything from you that you, that you offered to the Lord and sacrifice it as you stood there and watched. You, weren't even, you didn't have the privilege of doing that on your own accord. Once the temple, the sacrificial system was set up in the Mosaic Law, after the like days of Abraham and whatnot, you had to do this through the priest's work. But not only this, the key roles for these men were they were responsible for teaching you the Word of God, like a, very much like the lawyer, and helping the common person understand it. So they were responsible for teaching the Word. Now this is important because these men would have been familiar with, the, with, the, with what the law said regarding the situation they encountered that day. They would have known the scriptures about what they should have done when they encountered the, the, that man that day. Leviticus 19.34 The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you are aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, it doesn't tell us if this man was Jewish or, or a Gentile. Most people think that this man was Jewish because of the context. But Jesus doesn't make it known whether he is or isn't. So, if he doesn't think it's important for saying what nationality is, then we shouldn't make a big deal about it. But the cool thing about this is Leviticus 19.34 says the stranger and the native. So it doesn't matter what it is, you are to love them as you loved yourself, no matter what. Psalm 37.21, the wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. Micah 6.8, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. To do justice and to love kindness. Exodus 23, 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. Man, you're supposed to even love the, the person's animal, never mind a human being, according to Exodus 34. If anyone was to get involved in helping this man out, it was to be them. But what did they do? 31 and 32. They passed by on the other side. And here's the key, church. They saw them. When the Levite saw him, he passed by on the other side. When the priest saw him, he passed by on the other side. This was a deliberate ignorance. It wasn't like it was dark outside and they just happened to miss him, or he was half eaten by an animal, and so there was, there was remains and they couldn't actually make him out. They saw him and deliberately ignored him, breaking every single one of the laws written here. 
but Jesus is about to turn up the heat on the story. The situation for the lawyer is about to go from bad to worse as he hears Jesus unfold the parable. <coughs> Verse 33. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to the inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. To understand the significance of the depth of the Samaritan's actions and his compassion and love, and why Jesus even used this man in the first place, we have to understand the history and the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. So take a minute with me as we go through this. It's absolutely vital you understand this to know what's going on in the passage. You see, the times of Jesus... They weren't exactly each other's favorite people group. There was tons of hostility and tons of anger that went back centuries. In the days of King David and Solomon, Israel is united, 12 tribes, all in unity. But as when Solomon dies, mutiny occurs in the nation, and the land of Israel is divided into two. In the south, two tribes form Judah, and the capital is Jerusalem. In the north, 10 tribes unite and maintain the name Israel and the capital is Samaria. And I love how the Lord works. I didn't even know this, but like, you know, Stephanie's reading this morning was all about being in Samaria, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Uh, anyway, that's another, another thought. Go back to the passage here. So as the years go by, um, the northern tribes fall into apostasy and idolatry and God judges them through it. They get judged, and they send Assyria to judge the nation. The Assyrians deport the majority of Israelites to their own lands, but leave a remnant in Israel in the north and Samaria. And they start intermarrying with these people. And as a result of these mixed marriages, they started pr producing from the Jewish perspective this half-breed person. They had defiled their bloodlines and polluted their birthrights. And so this is a major issue for the purebred Jew. To make matters worse, the Samaritans now stop worshipping in Jerusalem. They build their own temple, create their own priesthood, and have their own sacrificial systems. We see the prevailing animosity in Jesus' day in John 4, and all these issues come up with the Samaritan woman. Remember, he, he arrives in Samaria, which is, for the, Jew, for the disciples, that would be unbelievable because Jews didn't pass through Samaria and Samaria didn't pass through like, uh, Jewish territory either. They would take the long road around to get to their destinations. They wouldn't go through each other's lands. <laughs> Stubborn. That's what unforgiveness does. Anyhow, they won't do this. And so when Jesus shows up in Samaria and they have a conversation, the woman says... Right away, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan? The woman recognizes this is unusual for a Jew to be talking to her. And then the issue of worship, after he points out some spiritual truths and she recognizes him to be a prophet, she says this to him, Our fathers say we are to worship on this mountain. You Jews say Jerusalem is the place to worship God. And Jesus corrects her on that thinking as well. So you can see the issue of racial tension, worship, is all present in John chapter 4 with Jesus' encounter with this woman. 
But the strongest statement I think of hatred for one another is found in John 8, 48. Jesus and the Pharisees are going toe-to-toe and they don't like him and what he's saying. And they say this to him. The, the, the Jews answered Jesus and said, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? <laughs> the biggest insult in Jerusalem is not you're a stupid jerk. It's you are a Samaritan and you're demon possessed. It can't get any lower for that in Jerusalem. Can't get any lower than that. That is the greatest insult you could ever have. You want to talk about animosity and hatred and uh, just total uh, chaos in terms of relationship between the two people, groups? You have it in John 4 and in John 8. Now, I know this took a long time to explain the history, but it's understand to, important to understand the relationship between the Jews and Samaritans to see why Jesus' use of the Samaritan is so powerful as an illustration to this lawyer. You see, from the lawyer's perspective, if anyone is going to be merciful and uphold God's standard of love in the Old Testament law, it's going to be the priest and the Levite. But it's not. It ends up being this half-breeded enemy of God. But little did he know that just in seconds from then, he was going to be admitting the very thing that he didn't want to do. Jesus asked him an incredible question in verse 36 that put him in a corner, kept him on the ropes with no way out. He says, which of these three do you think, lawyer, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy towards him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Jesus' question to the lawyer would have been a devastating one for him to answer truthfully. He he would have wanted to crawl in a hole when he had to admit that. He couldn't even say the Samaritan as a race. You notice that? He he could have said, because Jesus says um, a Samaritan came, and he says, "Who, who was the one who felt, who showed mercy, or who was a neighbor? And he says, the one who showed mercy. He couldn't even say the Samaritan. I don't know if there's anything to that, but I noticed that in my studies. He can't even say the word Samaritan. He has to say the one who showed mercy. Still, he answered correctly, Jesus said. But what Jesus did, it forced him to confront two major issues in his life. Two major issues in his life that were clearly in opposition to God. That he had never seen before. One, the question about who was his neighbor. So back to verse 29. To justify himself, who is my neighbor? That's the second question. Jesus clarifies it for him. Before he went toe-to-toe with Jesus, he had distinct qualifications for who was a neighbor and who wasn't. Who was in, who was out. Priest, Levite, you're in. You're my fellow countryman, a purebred Jew, purebred line, pure bloodline. Samaritan, you are out. You are out. To fulfill the law... I just have to love my Jewish people the way I do. I don't have to love my Samaritan the way you're asking me to. So I'm good with God. I love my neighbor. But by his own admittance, the Samaritan was the one who demonstrated mercy and fulfilled God's law, forcing him to redefine who constituted a neighbor. 
of all the people to fill, fulfill Leviticus 19.18, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It was the one who had a different, different religious background and different ethnicity to him and different social status in his eyes. But here is something new that I learned this week. I never saw this before until about Wednesday or Thursday, and I was so grateful for this, the Lord to show me this. I learned a new truth about this parable. When we preach this parable, we typically talk about who's the neighbor. We forget about the first question. How do I inherit eternal life? That's what started the whole thing off in the first place. I think really that's the issue that's central to the whole question. I believe if this man actually took Jesus' words to heart, for the first time in his life, he realized he did not have eternal life. Why? How? Well, remember what we just discussed earlier. What did he originally believe about himself? It was a test. He was justifying himself. He's already in the kingdom. He's already in. He, from his point of view, has loved his neighbor in a way that God approves of. Hands down, no question. So receiving an eternal life for him is a moot point. The issue was, by his own admittance, that the only person in Jesus' story that fulfilled the law's requirements in Leviticus 19.18 to love your neighbor was the Samaritan and not his fellow countrymen. And guess which cloth he is cut from? The priest and the Levite. That's the cloth he's cut from. And they're not the ones who fulfilled Leviticus 19 in that instance. A man they would have despised. A man that would have definitely been excluded from God's kingdom. And yet he self-admittedly declares to Jesus, if he wants to enter the kingdom of God, you need to love and emulate the Samaritan's compassion. <laughs> Isn't it incredible? He would have wanted to crawl in a hole. And I have a feeling this was a public question he asked Jesus. It wasn't like Nicodemus that went secretly to him at night. It says a, lo a lawyer stood up and brought him to the test. I'm, it doesn't say there's crowds there. The Good Samaritan doesn't occur in the, other, in the other Gospels. I hoped it did so that I could see if there was crowds. But it, I, I think there were probably crowds there. Could you imagine that? A religious leader, like the pastor of your church, being publicly your pastor of your church saying, I am good with God, publicly being humiliated, saying, you, have not, you are not good with God, and coming to that realization in front of everybody. There's no record of what this guy does after that. But man, if he took Jesus' words to heart, that would have been a moment of salvation if he was to confess and repent of how he viewed the Samaritan people and how he was so, he had qualifications for who was in the kingdom and who was out. Now here's the irony, and this is why I would never debate Jesus in public. <laughs> I can do it in my bedroom, and, and uh, so you guys don't listen. Um, but um, as you know, he's never wrong. But here's the point. The lawyer set out to test Jesus, and in the end, failed the test. The lawyer failed the eternal life test and publicly admitted it. So, 
What are two we to gain from this passage? I struggled like crazy to come up with the lessons. So, if uh, I may end up changing a couple of these if you guys help me out with gaining clarity on the passage, but I think I've captured the heart of the... I think what I said was true <laughs> from the verses. I think um, this, I might have to rework these in the future, but we are here right now, and so we'll deal with this as a church. But let's look at these. Number one. A neighbor, according to this parable, is anyone of different religious, ethnic, or social background and may even include your enemy. A neighbor is anyone of different religious, ethnic, or social background and can even include your enemy. This is why it's so key to understand the Samaritan in terms of the history between them and the Jewish tensions and know why Jesus specifically used that man as the example of showing compassion. Because up to this point, he was not a neighbor. He was different in religion's beliefs, different in ethnic uh, uh, um, bloodlines, had a different social background, and was considered an enemy, and he never thought him as a neighbor. But for the first time, Jesus made him realize he broke the commandments of Leviticus to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? You might say, well, I know this, Andrew, I know, and I even might say this to myself, I already knew this, like, you know, Christ set us free, so we're all neighborly and whatnot, and I have to accept everybody, but do we truly, deep down, when you see the Muslim with the burqa on, do you look at them with compassion and consider them equal as a neighbor? Our Orthodox Jew with their ringlet hairs and their funny haircuts. We were in Israel and it's like, it's crazy to watch like the Orthodox Jew stand beside the secular Jew and just how they dress differently. But to say that is my neighbor and not have a spirit of sort of conceit or elitism thinking, oh my goodness, thank goodness I'm not like them. Is this guy your neighbor with different ethnic background, different, different religious beliefs? different social status. Is that your neighbor? I know we're supposed to know it, but do we really understand what Jesus is calling us to? If we allow our ethnicity, religious background, or social standing to be the determining factor on how we love others, we'll be emulating the lawyer in hypocrisy and indifference. And it's easy to do. Jonah did it. Prophet of God. He will not go to the Assyrian people to preach truth because they are different. And he has to get a whale or a giant fish to set the the course right. (laughs) Loving our neighbor doesn't only mean loving those who fit our qualifications. This parable speaks hard to us as Christians. Second lesson. Now I say this is the this one is the one that's going to be interesting. In this context, this parable, loving your neighbor to the degree that Jesus desires is to lavishly take care of someone's dire need due to unforeseen circumstances. That is worded extremely carefully and on purpose. And I'm going to walk you through this now. I have to carefully tread through this lesson. I don't think when Jesus what Jesus had in mind when he taught this parable was that every time we see someone in need, 
We need to show kindness to the stranger, otherwise we fail to uphold the, the God's love code. Or that to give someone five dollars is, is actually what he's calling us to do. That we are just to alleviate some struggles here and there, and therefore we prove to pa- pass the love test. First of all, it's impossible to take care of everybody's needs. If you were to walk downtown Vancouver and just pass person after person after person after person, you could not, you could not possibly do and fulfill everything that God, like, that God would lay out before you in terms of people. But not only this church, more importantly, the Bible clearly lays out times when we're not to give and not to take care of those in need. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. So there's there's an able-bodied man in the church who can physically work, but he's choosing not to. He says he's not to be provided food by the church and and, and stuff like that if, if, if if he's in that situation. And in verse 14 is a slam. And do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame Regard him as an enemy, but reprimand him as a brother. So the purpose of not eating with them is not to like kick him out of the church. It's to say, listen, buddy, you're an able-bodied man. We're not to be compassionate towards you. Be the good Samaritan. You can make money with your own hands. You're just being lazy. Get out there and get your butt moving. Get a job and hold it down. Right? So if someone's in need... And, we, and, they, and they're able-bodied, for example, and they can work in their practical skills. It's not being a good Samaritan if we hand them like 10 bucks and say, well, here you go. Remember, this situation is unforeseen circumstances, no fault of his own. And this is the kind of thing he's talking about. And, it's, and the kind of love that he poured out was lavish. And you look at all the things he did. Like, I didn't even talk about them. The degree of his love was unbelievable. Unbelievable investment of time and resources to make sure this man didn't die. Just so you know, like two denarii, I got some commentators said that two denarii is two months of hotel fees in that culture. Just to give you an idea of how much he put into this in terms of extravagance. So this guy, he's lavish love. This guy's in dire circumstances and it's unfor- or dire, yeah, dire circumstances and it's unforeseen circumstances. Another list in the Bible is the widow's list. A widow comes forward and they say, you, we can provide for you, but we can't provide for you based on these criteria. This is in Ephesus. Someone might say, well, man, that church is failing to live up to Jesus' teaching of being the Good Samaritan because they didn't take care of widow X, Y, and Z. But Paul says, no, 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 to be actually loving in the circumstances to do so because there's a, there's a way in which we're to hand out mercy and compassion in these situations. And I say this because many people use this Man, this parable is a mandate to take care of all the Christian poor. But we have to be very careful here because this parable is not teaching that. And I know many people in our, my denomination would want to walk out the door when they hear me say that. But it's not that, because there are certain, some situations where yes, we would do so. But there are some situations where the answer is no, we wouldn't do so. And we, especially if the guy had the ability to work and he was poor because he wasn't working, right? So think, we have to think these things through and see what is Jesus really doing here? All right, enough said. Finally, this is the hardest one for me to word. One of the main points behind Jesus' parable 
is that it is designed as an evangelistic effort to help all of us see our need for the gospel. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Don't forget question number one. (laughs) We always focus on question number two. Question number one starts the whole thing up. Who is my neighbor is a way of justifying himself. But initially, that's not what the issue was. What happens here is this this self-righteous religious guy learns something massive. It wasn't a manual on how to help the less fortunate. Jesus wasn't trying to teach him that. Although there are implications for charity in in the parable. This story is told to a self-righteous religious man as an evangelistic effort to bring him to the true sense of his sinfulness and need for God's mercy. He had failed to uphold the law. This is why it's so powerful in verse 37. And he said to him, the one, after the Samaritan said, the one who showed mercy was the one who was a neighbor. Jesus says, go and do the same. Go and do the same. Before that comment, the Samaritan says, I have done that. For the first time in his life, Jesus says, no, you haven't. Go and do it now, the way I've changed the parameters for you. He, the, the, Samaritan, or the, the, the lawyer had failed to do the very thing he had claimed to have done. And if he had understood Jesus' words and at that moment was broken before God, he would have cried out for mercy to realize that he'd failed to uphold the very law he had claimed to be teaching others to do. Now, Jesus does that to us, doesn't he? He messes us up all the time. And we think we know something about how the Christian life's been lived out, or even as a non-believer before we're Christians, and he comes in and he completely erratically changes our viewpoint on how life is to be lived. Do you know how I see this practically playing out in, in our world? And, I, and I, 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 our, our culture is riddled, riddled with people that say they know they're good with God because of how good they are as people. I'm a good person, I'm a good person, I'm a good person. That's exactly the, 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 the thinking of this man. I'm good with God because I've loved the way God wanted me to. Jesus says, you've not loved the way God wanted to. You've broken some commands. And that's so amazing. A lot of us, when we became Christians, probably had the idea that we were incredible people. And through our actions and the way we lived morally, God would accept us. And then we hear the gospel. Wait a minute. My good actions haven't saved me? You mean God's grace is the what, what it takes God's grace and the cross to save me? And our world is rocked because we've never thought that before. Jesus has a way of messing us up and reorientating our thinking. And uh, I think this is so vital for the parable. So vital for the parable. And this changed my life this week by reading that in a good way.